the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 2. I've been looking forward to this all day. It's a delight to bring back to the show Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, uh, happy Friday. Thanks for being with us. Nice to talk to you again. And to you, Seth. Always great to be with you. Thank you. I've been thinking a lot as we're going into Father's Day weekend um, and just a lot of things in the news. I've been thinking a lot about uh, and talking a lot about today, today talking a lot about issues uh, of men in society, issues and importances and the importance of fathers in society. And I noticed that on your Twitter page, uh, you and I are both big fans of Brad Wilcox, Professor Wilcox. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you retweeted uh, something that, from an interview where he said, when dads are on the scene, communities are safer, children are more likely to flourish, and the American dream is stronger. There is indeed – I know some wars you know, are overstated and not – but there is indeed some kind of war against the family that's hard to put our fingers on, some kind of war against fathers, some kind of war against martial virtues, manly virtues, some kind of war against boys that is going on here, sir. Well, however it's happening, one of the things that we can certainly agree on are the results that we're seeing across a whole array of factors for uh, men in America are very depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, whether we're talking about uh, my area of uh, employment or sector in uh, higher education, mm-hmm. uh, we are definitely seeing uh, declines both at the high school and college level mm-hmm. in male graduation rates and, and participation in higher education. Uh, when we look at areas um, that are, frankly, maybe more uh, directly reflective of uh, cultural or social engagement. Uh, one of the data points that jumps out to, uh, to me um, and maybe to your listeners, men are responsible for 80% of suicides mm-hmm. in the country, mm-hmm. according to the CDC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, when you look at related factors that might be, say, uh, upstream of suicide, when you're looking at uh, addiction rates and certainly uh, what some might call antisocial behaviors yes, in, in crime and so forth. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the indicators are really not looking good uh, for men, and it's precipitated uh, a, a growing body of, of research and interest in this area. Obviously, Brad Wilcox is well-known, but Richard Reeves has a best-selling mm-hmm. uh, book out from the Brookings Institution on these issues, and uh, we're, we're, we're definitely beginning to see uh, more research and taking this seriously, because I think for so long, and I certainly have seen this in higher education, uh, all the focus was, was on the one side to say, what can we do to balance uh, female to male representation in higher education and high school graduation rates? Well, we balanced that out uh, over 30 years ago, and uh, it's really been since the mid to late 1980s 
that we've seen this trend line really picking up speed uh, in the last uh, few years where we're seeing, again, these really negative uh, results for uh, men across a whole array of both economic and and societal factors. Well, there must be not only a thirst, uh, not only a demand, but a huge thirst for this. Uh, you you know the work of George Gilder. He has a new book out yeah. on the economy. One of his, I think, earlier books, it must be at least 30, 35 years old, is a book called Men in Marriage. I heard him on his new book on a radio show. I think it was Prager's show. And, he's, and Prager was telling him how much he liked that book, Men in Marriage. And Gilder said, after 30 or whatever many years it's been, he said they're reissuing it. That's how that's how that's how much thirst and need there is for these kinds of books and this kind of this kind of messaging because you're right that 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 parody suppose that parody you spoke of that we we achieved about 30 years ago with with women I mean the message to women was a little to put it colloquially you go girl and they did yeah you know yeah. and they did and yeah and, it's and the message to boys right? was different I mean, yeah go ahead yeah and and it's worth celebrating yeah, i mean of that course, that, of course. It, that does show that uh progress can be made in in these areas uh especially when it comes to education um what i think we're only beginning to see though is uh are people asking the question thoughtfully, uh, why are we beginning to see really such a decline in male participation, whether it's high school graduation rates or uh, not just finishing college, but even applying to college? And I think whereas you could look at structural factors and some cultural factors in the fact that we didn't have a balance in the United States for many decades right. in uh, female uh, participation in education. Uh, I think we're looking almost exclusively at cultural factors now being being the reason why uh, we're not uh, we're not finding a balance between uh, males and females when it comes to higher education or a number of these other issues that we've talked about. Yeah, and I'll come back to higher in a second, higher education or post-secondary education in a second. I was astounded, and I think I brought this up with you last week, uh, last time we we visited. Uh, might have been two weeks ago. Um, I was astounded to see that the elementary and secondary teacher workforce is about 25% male, a little less, if I'm not mistaken. And it seems to me that's a really interesting thing when you think of how few males are in the elementary and secondary teaching workforce. There's probably a lot of economic reasons for that. But think about the social consequences of that when we think about what it is that young boys need in education, which is beyond the reading and math, but the presence, you know, the Aristotelian concept of putting putting, putting young boys in the presence of, of, of men of men who can teach them good character, habit, and virtue just by their very presence, yeah? I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing, too, to think about, I, I believe. It is, and it's one that, again, across a, an array of other factors, whether it's increasing the participation of uh, black teachers, uh-huh, right. uh, whether it's the Plus. participation of Hispanic teachers mm-hmm. and others, really with the argument that for students to see someone who, frankly, looks like them, has a similar background than them, it can cause uh, encouragement and aspiration to follow through on your educational journey. 
we haven't really been taking seriously just the this male female question, no. which the balance is. Uh, the last data I saw was 75-25 yeah. in elementary school between okay. uh, female and male teachers. Yeah. yeah, about where I'm thinking. And it's interesting. You, you said we haven't really taken seriously in that context. We know how to take it seriously and did take it seriously in the context of education with racial representation, racial minority representation. Right. This was a huge part of desegregation, a huge part of Brown versus Board of Education and its aftermath. Weirdly enough, as much as that achieved, and it achieved a ton in yeah. diminishing racism, uh, in 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 decrease in, in decreasing barriers between, uh, shall we say, white black interaction, and you've seen the polling questions: Would you have a friend? Would you marry? Would you live in a neighborhood? Those numbers changed dramatically after desegregation. Let me put it this way: after integration, and. On that front, you know, we're kind of backsliding too as well. There seems to be a movement to resegregate a little bit, at least self-resegregate a little bit too. It's it's an unhappy thing for me to see. It is, and we've certainly seen that all the way up to the levels of higher education, right, right. whether we're talking about primarily dorms in higher or education, graduation right. yeah. ceremonies, right. and so forth. Right, dorms. Um, but to this specific uh, category that we're talking about, in male, female, I. I I do think it's worth asking the similar questions that we did uh, in on an array of other areas where we saw an imbalance and understanding the importance of young people identifying uh, with role models. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, it's something that we've been uh, totally fine with answering uh, and and seeking ways through intentional programs, student uh, or teacher recruitment programs, and so forth. Uh, and and professorial uh, recruitment programs, uh, for that matter, that we wanted to find greater balance there. But we're really getting to a place where less than a quarter or maybe even less than a fifth of teach of elementary school teachers are men. Um, why aren't we asking the, the same kinds of yeah, questions right. about the impact on, on male students? Exactly right, Pete. Let me pick up with you on that when we come back, if I might. I, I mean, we had, I had jokingly said a couple weeks ago, maybe we need affirmative action programs for men, and you didn't. You didn't take it as it. You, you took it fairly seriously. We might want to talk about some of the the movements and thoughts in that when we come right back, if that's okay. Pete Peterson is my guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, fantastic institution. Um, you want to pursue a career and helping fix society it needs it uh you want to go to pepperdine school of public policy pete and i'll be right back pete peterson is my guest he is the dean at the pepperdine school of public policy and by the way just has a fantastic uh fantastically active uh, Twitter account where if you want to read some of the studies and on some of the things that uh, attract his attention that we talk about on here, do follow him on Twitter. It's um, at Pete4CA, at Pete, the number 4CA. Pete, I, you know, the notion that, you know, maybe there needs to be some form of, <laughs> I don't know if it's affirmative action, I don't know if it's recruitment of men in some of these jobs, whether they're in elementary and secondary, or whether it's at the collegiate level. I mean, you look at the, at the freshman, incoming freshman classes, you look at the graduating classes, men have a problem. 
Yeah, I mean, the numbers we're beginning to see in higher education, it's not uncommon to see a 60-40 split between uh, female students coming into colleges and universities and male. And I do know that while it's it's often not publicized, uh, that whether it's on uh, admissions committees or uh, on some of the recruitment processes that colleges are going into, uh, a larger number of uh, colleges and universities are understanding they need to be much more intentional about recruiting male students. Uh, now, when it comes to the issue around elementary school and high school teachers, yeah, I think it's fair to say that there does need to be a more, much more aggressive outreach uh, to male students, starting with those um, in college and university who might be thinking of going on to higher education, especially in graduate schools of, of education psychology. As I say that, I have to say that, you know, the graduate education schools tend to be uh, ideologically much more left-wing than almost any other um, field, academic discipline, at least at the graduate level. But I, I do think uh, that it's it's worth being much more intentional about these issues, understanding as we have across a whole array of other uh, demographics, that it's important to have a balance of representation uh, for role models of of students, whether it's at the elementary school level, the high school level, or the college level. And in society, too, right? When we yep. are talking about the kinds of things Brad Wilcox was talking about, the kinds of things that have been talked about for many years, I just don't think people took it very seriously. I remember as far back as 1994, uh, a big essay by Irving Kristol in Wall Street Journal titled Life Without Father and what it mm-hmm. meant when he was looking at prison rates, addiction rates, uh, crime rates, all that sort of thing. The importance not just of men, of course, in education and other other professional careers, but just in a household, raising their boys, raising their children. You look at most of these mass violent events that we lament and see too often, um, people want to talk about what the political beliefs are of that of that of that actor or of that alleged uh, assault or batter or assailant. I'm more interested kind of in two other things. I'm kind of interested in the family they grew up in and whether there was a father increasingly you see there wasn't. And I want to see their toxicology screen. But the father absence thing is usually not – the father is usually absent in these violent children's lives. Yeah, and we've known that data. I mean it is well known that um, status of of whether one grows up in a – a household in which both of the biological parents are present um, or even having two parents present, um, that when that doesn't happen, that is the highest predictor of uh, criminal behavior that we know. And it's it stands to reason, but sometimes one forgets. I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a family where uh, my parents were divorced at an early age. And one of the things that sometimes we don't think of is when there's a divorce, you're often not just losing one parent, you're losing two parents. Mm-hmm. Um, because what often happens is if there was an opportunity for one parent to be home more regularly or frequently, uh, that person invariably has to go into 
the workforce. And so you're not just losing, and I'm not even making a statement about whether who that should be. I'm just saying that that is the, the natural progression of what happens in a household. And it is rarely, if ever, a good thing for a child uh, growing up through elementary school and certainly through high school, where there isn't more of a presence at home of at least one, if not both, of the parents. Absolutely right. And I think to the degree I count myself, I do count myself, so to the degree I count myself in the what might be loosely called social conservative movement or as a social conservative as long as, as well as an economic conservative but a social one mm-hmm. as well. When we talk about the things that sometimes tend to dominate uh, social conservative conversations, I am always trying to push a conversation about the impact too of divorce when it comes to family relations. Someone mm-hmm. once said – uh, divorce is the destruction of a small civilization. I don't. I, mm. I. I think our movement has been too lax on that issue. Quite honestly, I know there's good reasons for it, and sometimes it's even a better reason. But I think we've been too lax on it, and I think we've been too loose on it. Frankly, you know, Seth, I think you raise a really important point. As I think about many of the issues that the conservative movement, if not the social conservative movement. Um, has has not taken on. At one sense, though, it's couched in the broader terms around the importance of family, right. uh, but it doesn't get to that next level right. of well, exactly what are we talking exactly. about here? Yeah, and and what are some of the factors that uh, comprise what we've known really since Adam and Eve uh, constitute effective family? formation and uh, and not just family formation, but what that means for a future generation. So many of the issues, and we just talked about crime, but so many of the issues that uh, a nation deals with or a community deals with that might be called antisocial behavior just so often originate in bad family situations. That's right. That's and right. being so much more intentional about, well, what are the what are the factors that either might ameliorate those things or public policies even that could either uh, support or inhibit family flourishing? Being very specific about what we mean there with the two-parent family, um, I, I think you raise a very important point there. The divorce thing, there's about three points here, I think, Pete. There's that point that you articulated so well. There's something I'll never get out of my head years and years ago. Do you know Jonathan Rausch a little bit? Atlanta? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, I met him. Years yep. and years ago, we were talking about the arguments pro and con on gay marriage. He was a, 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 a early, strong, and articulate yep. and prolific uh, proponent of it. And uh, we were just having a casual conversation. And I said, well, what do you say about the argument of the diminishing of the institution of marriage? And he looked at me and he said, what do you think Britney Spears' 55-hour marriage did? Yeah. And I, you know, it's, uh, let me let me come back with marriage uh, and uh, and some thoughts on that with you Very as, good. Uh, when we come right back. Pete Peterson is my guest. I'm Seth Leibson, and we'll both be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. It is just a delight to have Pete Peterson here with us today. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policies. We try and visit just about every couple of weeks on these Fridays. I get so much out of them. We don't usually rehearse much. We just <laughs> It's just kind of nice, <laughs> nice to have someone, uh, a, a kindred, a kindred uh, brain. Pete, I said there was, I think, a third element to this thing about men and marriage and family. And that, that third thing, the mockery of marriage, the problems that we, I think, leave too unaddressed, the ease of divorce, the casualness of divorce, what, and, and the Im- impact that has on, on children. And I think maybe that drives into the third thing, which is an astounding thing I don't think we talk much about either, which is the um, vast and fast declining marriage rate which I think is about half of what it was when you and I were kids, and it's about 20% or uh, maybe maybe 30, 40%, 30% less than it was just as, as recently as the 1980s when you and I were kind of a, becoming aware of the world around us. The interest of young men in getting married is so much less than it ever was. It's about 50% of what it was in 1970. Yeah. No, it, that's right. I mean, the mockery the, of marriage, the, the divorce thing, all that has something to do with it. Not all of it, but it has something to do with it. Well, and I think it can be situated alongside a number of other what the kids call adulting behaviors okay. uh, that we've seen in decline, particularly for men, uh, over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, whether it's the obtaining of driver's licenses, whether it's moving out of the house yep. and, and uh, finding a place of your own. Um, certainly marriage rates are, are part of that as well. And when those initial things, steps aren't taken, uh, the, the prospects for, uh, I mean, just thinking it through, if you're not living outside of the house, it makes it more difficult for dating to even happen, yeah. right? I mean, um, and so this is, this is certainly part and parcel of, of a larger se- series of behaviors that we've seen in decline, but the the steepness of the drop, um, you know, the the data that I'm seeing shows that it was almost three quarters okay. of uh, Americans were married, uh, you know, over the age of 22 yeah. in 1970, okay. and now it's less than a third. Okay, so that's precipitous. It's even higher than I thought. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, these are, and. And Seth, I mean, how often are we, are we talking about this? How many Americans know just how different America looks today? Because, you know, it's not just the marriage rate. It goes back to what you were talking before from that Brad Wilcox yeah. data, yeah. which now we're talking about communities. Yeah. What does a community look right. like right. when less than a third of the people in the community are married? What does it mean for coaches of Little League teams? What does it mean for people participating in the PTA? What does it mean for even kids and birth rates? And It means I mean, San Francisco, all... and I mean that because well, of something yeah. Tevi Troy said when he went out there and he said, the thing I noticed, you see all these news art, all the news shows, Fox, other videos, that great documentary that was put out on San Francisco, the homelessness, the chronic, terrible chronic homelessness, the walking zombies, the drug use. He said, no kids. No one yeah. makes the point there are no kids in San Francisco. Yeah. No, that's so true. Chicken or egg, it, I'm not sure, but it is part of it. Yeah. No, that's so true. And again, what we've seen, again, precipitated by 
COVID is we've seen an even larger share of the families who had lived in San Francisco moving out. Right, right. Uh, San Francisco's lost a larger percentage of its population in the last two years than any other U.S. metropolitan area, and a large percentage of those people leaving the area uh, were families, even albeit small ones, but still uh, families. And they're coming to places like Phoenix yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and other places where, uh, frankly, support for families, whether it's in lower um, cost of living or better education systems, uh, or at least less expensive private e- uh, education systems uh, is all made made possible, uh, which which li- actually brings up another issue, which I think really is worth keeping in mind. I mean, that Tevi Troy point about San Francisco is so important, but seen a different way, I mean, San Francisco is kind of California on steroids. Let, right? let me have you uh... – Expand on that in just a sec. Yeah. Uh, that's I, – uh, yes, I think I know where you're going, but uh, I'd love to hear it. Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, you want to uh, try and fix your community by getting involved and getting educated in uh, public policy from a great school? This is that great school. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is my guest from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We were talking about the importance of families in a community. Aristotle talks about the balance between the family and the community and what happens if neither of them is there to protect one another. It's really in his first page or first first couple pages of, of his book on the politics, which is about building a community. Politics is about a polis. But Pete, we were talking about what do you get when you lose families, um, and I said you get San Francisco, you get walking zombies, you get all the problems that you have. You have no children, you have uh, high crime, you have fleeing businesses, you have what looks by any viewing from television uh, or documentary on San Francisco these days, you get a dystopia, a modern-day living dystopia. And you were making the point. Um, you were making the point that San Francisco is California on steroids. I think of <laughs> maybe California on fentanyl. I don't know. Steroids are supposed to reduce <laughs> maybe, inflammation. Maybe that's <laughs> a more appropriate <laughs> anyway, yeah. metaphor. Yeah, supposed to steroids should reduce pain. But anyway, I right. take your point. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, that. I mean, the most recent data that we have just on this point was from the the nonpartisan legislative analyst office for the state of California, yeah. which advises the legislature on impacts of uh, legislation and so forth. And their research looking at the uh, 10-year period between 2008 and 2018, so this is still well before COVID, where we've seen an even greater increase. But just in that 10-year period, the number one age demographic leaving the state during that period, which of course led up to the census in 2020, where we lost a congressional seat, um, were Californians under the age of 18. And this was in what period between 08 and 18? 08 and 18. Uh-huh. And, and of course, this wasn't uh, just this massive teenage runaway crisis right. that we were experiencing. These were multiple kids in homes where the families had decided that they wanted to or needed to leave the state. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, this is something that we've only seen increase uh, in the last couple of years. The most recent data uh, coming out earlier this year, which showed that half a million Californians left the state just in the last two years. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the the breakout as to how many uh, families were involved in those moves, but I can say certainly anecdotally uh, that I know a number of families that when the opportunity came for their jobs to go remote during COVID, they took it. Uh, they took it, yeah, and left left the state with their families for reasons having to do with, um, you know, these issues related to cost of living and education and and crime and and so forth. So on that other Aristotelian point, we were talking about him from uh, from the ethics earlier. So now in his book on the politics, he does talk about when you come to build a society, there are two institutions. It's obviously the government or the the city and the polis and the family. And then there's this interesting discussion of which is primary. But the impact of a family on a community, on a city. um, I kind of think of it in this way, Pete, as I'm thinking out loud with you. I've never articulated this before, so I might be wrong by the time I finish the sentence. But, you know, I think... Let's explore it. (laughs) Let's explore it. I've always thought the mark of a good school, one of the marks of a good school is one that welcomes parent involvement. Yeah. And it seems to me the mark of a good city community is one that welcomes and has strong families in a similar analog, if I might. Yeah. Well, I think this is a very fair point. And what that triggers in my mind, that analogy that you're making is what are we seeing at that intersection between government and family, right. which is the school system? Yep. And what is the kind of rhetoric we're hearing <laughs> from school administrators and teachers when they talk about our kids? Or the president, yeah. yeah. And so that, again, really goes at this uh, question about, you know, whose kids are they yep. anyway? Yeah. And you probably heard that we have... Uh, legislation that's yes. apparently now made it out of the state Senate yeah. that's going to really uh, make it possible for uh, children to uh, sue or um, even bring legal charges against parents who did not recognize uh, what they state to be uh, their gender. Yes, I saw um, that, and I saw a bill to even involve whatever your version of children's services is. That's right. Yeah, okay. And so, you know, these these measures which go right at that relationship and seek to define divide the relationship between parents and children all with an eye towards saying that we know we the government, mm-hmm. we know better. Mhm. Mm-hmm. That's that's always the unstated case mm-hmm. that when a, a school administrator says that they're our, our kids mm-hmm. at one level you're like, well, I hope you do care about mm-hmm. my kids. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when it comes to these decisions which are made without parental involvement and actually are being made looking to avoid parental mm-hmm. involvement, mm-hmm. Uh, that's really where we've crossed crossed a line. And uh, so that's where, you know, in this discussion around is there public policy that can support and promote fatherhood, families, and so forth, how are we going to respond when we see that not only is the government 
not involved in that conversation, uh, but is actually seeking to uh, tear down uh, or intervene in that relationship between parent and child. You know, it's as I'm as I'm listening to you recite that. I've listened to the teachers' unions say this. I've listened to the administrators, legislators, as in the California Assembly, the president of the United States, many a time now, saying that very same thing. What a quick lurch! What a quick swing we went from during COVID. Schools aren't important. We don't actually want the kids to. Oh no, they're ours. What a quick whiplash, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And again, it it goes to um, what really is that relationship? And are you building policies around that perception that the teachers know better than the parents? And we are certainly we are certainly seeing that. Yeah. Um, And and that's and and it goes to the question of what is being taught in yeah. the schools, above and beyond the policies outside of it, yeah. but what is being taught. And this, this uh, pressing of ideology into curriculum is really based on a larger uh, ideological view of education, which is the teacher knows best. <laughs> and uh, that's something that really needs to be put in context and, and understood and confronted. I'm going to close with uh, the opening line to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. I doubt whether we are sufficiently attentive to the importance of elementary textbooks. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we're paying enough attention to any of this stuff. Well, that's why we keep you around, Pete. Love having you. I love it. I love it. Great to be here, sir. Thank you, sir. Have a great weekend and Father's Day, sir. You too. Thanks so much. You bet. Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Bank failures, market volatility, inflation, talk of a recession on the horizon. Where do you go to invest if you're interested in investing your money? Why Refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. A portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any Time. There are no fees in this collateralized secure portfolio from Y Refi. Y Refi is local. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. They'd love to have you. I've been there and you won't get a sales pitch. You won't be asked to sign anything. They just like talking about what they do. And when you meet with the team at Y Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can as well. Y Refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10 and a quarter percent fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. That's 888-YREFI-34. I went and grabbed that Irving Crystal essay I was mentioning to Pete Peterson, Life Without Father, from 1994. He opens it by saying one of the incontestable findings of modern social science is that fathers are very important people. I confess to having been astonished to discover just how important we are, he's speaking, important in all sorts of unexpected ways. Thus, it turns out that almost two-thirds of rapists, three-quarters of adolescent murderers, and the same percentage of long-term prison inmates are young males 
who grew up, young males who grew up without fathers in the house. I doubt that many fathers have understood that their mission in life had anything to do with the prevention of rape, murder, or long-term imprisonment among their sons. But lo and behold, it does. It's an interesting thing when we step back for a moment and think about things we used to take for granted or things we may even still take for granted as ordinary, things you don't think much about. Oh, father. Oh, mother. Oh, family. Whoever thinks about these things. Well, it turns out when you're looking at social pathologies, if that's something you care about or are concerned about, and unfortunately, given their growth, we all have to be now. There are no safe places in America anymore. Not, uh, not, uh, not anywhere, really. Um, you have to think about what used to be these ordinary, work-a-day, generalized institutions of civil existence as crucially important. Nothing you can take for granted. For when we take that which we have known and that which has been a part of our DNA building block of society and begin to take it for granted and then let it slide, treat it with insouciance and neglect, and then beyond that, question and dismiss it as unimportant, well, you get San Francisco, you get Portland, you get once great places turned rotten, and the rock grows. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.